Miss Nell knows how to do it, doesn't she? She said, bringing it down to a worshipful spirit as we open God's Word. 1 John chapter 5, 13 through 15. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> you'll notice that I use the term born ones or born of God a lot. And there's a reason for that. You know, out about through the years witnessing, I was, oh, well, I'm a Christian. And everybody says, well, you're a Christian, it seems like. So I started saying, well, oh, really? I'm Are you a follower of Jesus? You know, well, I don't get, I'm not involved in a church, if that's what you mean, or whatever. And, and so here, you know, it's unfortunate that the word Christian is tossed around so casually because Christian means follower of Christ. I'm not trying to be unkind to those people. I'm just saying, hey, let's be sure we understand what Christian is. If I'm a Christian according to the Word of God, and I'm living according to the Word of God, I am a follower of Christ. And then that's why I use the term born once, <laughs> because I've said that, you know, I'm a Christian. Well, oh, you've been born again? Well, well, you know, and that hits a little fuzzy note with them sometimes. Born ones, born of God, born from above. First John chapter five. We'll start reading verse 10. He that believeth on the Son of God have the witness in himself. He that believeth not God has made him a liar because he has not believed the record that God gave of his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have written you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He hear us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Heavenly Father, it's an incredible thing to read these lines, to realize the truth that if we pray and ask, and it's according to will, we have it from your sovereign hand. Lord, teach us these lines today Press them to our souls, to our hearts, for your glory, Lord, that we become more and more thoroughly furnished, filled in and with and delighting in thy holy word. We love you, Master. All of thee, none of me, for your honor, praise, and glory, and our instruction in righteousness, Father. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray.
Amen and amen. Well, in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 4, John used the present tense when he wrote these lines. These things write we unto you. Present tense. These things we write unto you that your joy may be full. Now in this present text, 1 John 5, 13, John used the past tense. I have written these things unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Thus, when he says these things in verse 13, it goes back and includes all those things he has said throughout the epistle from the very first verse. These things I have written unto you that believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you may know that you have eternal life. Additionally, in this verse, John clearly identified his intended recipients of this letter. It's Christians, that you may be those that believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Writing to Christians. Unsaved people may read this epistle. Well, they will. But the addressees are Christians, those that have already believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. What's, that's true of all the scriptures, by the way. The scriptures are written to the people of God, those who believe in Him, those who have trusted His Son as Savior. It's written to us. These are letters of instruction to us. As Francis Safer said decades ago, how then shall we live? This is how we live, because it's written to us to instruct us in righteousness as to how we should live. As believers, we can read the scriptures and we discover all the glorious gifts of grace that have been, have been bestowed and are being bestowed on us as we go through life and our journey home. And then as we're in the process of going through life on our journey home, we also read all of this, these glorious truths about our future home, the glory of heaven. So instruction for now and delighting us in the aspects of the future in heaven. Unbelievers, if they will read the word of God, can discover all the gifts of grace they're missing and will continue to miss if they're not saved or until they're saved, until they're born of God and also read of their horrendous future in hell apart from God. In verse 13, we see that John is coming now to the end of this epistle. These things I've written, bringing it down to a close now. And there's a great similarity in the conclusion of John's gospel to this epistle, what is written here. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Did you ever, when you read those lines, did you ever think, goodness, John, I wish you had written more so I could read about all the things that he did with his disciples as they were traveling back and forth around Jerusalem, Sea of Galilee, shoreline and things. 
But, he says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. But, similarities notwithstanding, in John's gospel, his purpose was evangelistic, that you might believe. Evangelistic thrust. In this epistle, his purpose is to reassure or to affirm our faith, those who have already believed upon the name of the Son of God. Verse 13, uh, 513b, that you may know, nailing it down, that you may know that you have eternal life. And I want to tell you, there are people around seeking God, studying the Word of God, are convinced you can never know for sure. Well, I hope I'm going to make it, or whatever, you know. But the Word of God says, right here, these are written so that we know, period, done. Now, we can move on in serving the Lord with our lives because we're not fooling around trying to figure out where He is in the first place. That's a treacherous spiritual position to be in, always doubting salvation. We have, he says, that you know, you have, that's that word, you have, that's in present tense. What does that mean? Present possession. You have now presently possessed eternal life. That's what John says right here in this verse. All those that are born of God right now possess eternal life. And of course that verse states clearly what his purpose was. He's written in the beginning all the way down to this. His purpose all along, all along the way was that, that we would have that assurance. His first century readers and us as well, that we'd have that confident assurance, absolutely knowing in our knower that we are the children of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now looking at verse 13 a little closer, these things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Believe on, believe on, that phrase, believe on the name of the Son of God. That little word on is a Greek word, eis, E-I-S. It's a primary preposition, okay? Primary preposition. And it more means believe in or even into. It's that, it's believing in or even could mean into. It's a word that means reaching the point indicating the point has been reached or entered. And that's kind of where we are, right? We have believed in, we believed into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in his name. We've entered into an eternal relationship, never to change, never to bury, never to be set aside, an eternal relationship. We have believed into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe everything about him, the Word of God says. You know, John had been dealing with these Gnostics, some of this stuff. But we're those what? We believe that he indeed came in the flesh. 
We believe that he passed through the baptismal waters. And we believe that he finished his earthly salvation ministry on Calvary's tree. We believe all of that, that he is indeed the son of a living God, virgin born. And then he did all this in the saving of our souls. So John's recipients, then and now, us and them, are ones that have believed the record, the record given. First John 5, 11, this is the record that God hath given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And then as a result of believing the record, each born of God person believing that record, 510 says we have the witness in ourselves. This is a fascinating thing to think about theologically. We have the witness within ourselves once we've been born of God. Who's that witness? Romans 8, 6, 8, 6 says, The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Remember the key point about our believing confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this, and this is the key thing. It's the main thing in certain aspects. Paul wrote, wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. True. But the last phrase is what I want us to focus on. And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit, that witness within us, is the one that enables us to say that saving confession in the first place. Thou art to Christ the Son of the living God. That witness is within us post our conversion, a regeneration, I should say, because the Holy Spirit is the agent of any, all, and every regenerated experience. Regeneration, our regeneration, is the work of the Holy Spirit alone. John 3, 5, and 6, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, confirms this. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Nicodemus, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth. Now hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell where it cometh and where it goeth. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. Isn't that fascinating? When you were brought to, being brought to faith, when you were regenerated, did you see the Holy Spirit coming? And after you had done His magnificent work in your wretched soul, and now you're converted and a believer, did you see Him leave? Of course not, because He didn't leave. We have the witness in ourselves. He remains. He regenerates each believer. And then that believer, mad woman, boy, or girl, has the witness in themselves from then on all the way out to glory 
Of course, all the members of the Trinity are involved, you know, in our conversion, our being brought to Christ, all, all three members of the Trinity. But the Holy Spirit is revealed as the primary agent in our conversion, in regenerating dead sinners, which we all were upon a time. The Holy Spirit is the one that regenerates us. John 6, 63, if the Spirit, it is the Spirit that quicketh, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. It is the Spirit that quickened. The Word of God talks about us being quickened. And someday our mortal bodies will be quickened. You see, work of the Holy Spirit of God. Go back to the Genesis record. The Spirit of God brewed over the waters, you see. He acts sovereignly. He acts apart from any, anything in man. Any good work, any bad work. Any good attitude, any bad attitude. Any right motive, any bad motives. Nothing in man. He deals with deadness. Spiritual deadness. That is helpless in spiritual deadness and can do nothing moving toward God. That's with whom he works. He sovereignly acts on those whom the Father has chosen before the foundation of the earth to be adopted into his family through Christ Jesus the Lord. The work of the Spirit. So what are we saying? Regeneration precedes salvation. Regeneration precedes belief. Spiritual things must be spiritually discerned. A spiritually dead person can't discern any of this stuff. And so we've got to have a work on us. A sovereign work on us. Before we can believe. So the Holy Spirit is the primary agent. 663, it is a spirit that quicketh. The spirit that quickeneth. And you know what? We believe only because we've been enabled, enabled by the Holy Spirit. And then, though, in addition to that, He guarantees that we're going to believe. Isn't that fascinating? What God has done? He sends the Holy Spirit, like the Holy Hound of Heaven, as one of the holy, old divines said. What's this Holy Hound of Heaven? And I say that with all due respect and reverence. Who is He after? The elect of God. Regenerating them, raising them from spiritual death, bringing them to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And someone will say, well, what if they won't believe? Oh, they're going to believe. <laughs> they, you're going to believe, ladies and gentlemen. When the Lord of glory regenerates your soul from deadness to life, you're going to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to guarantee that. Because when the day is done, those who are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the earth to be adopted in the family of, the, of God. There's not going to be one lost. They're going to all be safely home. That is amazing grace. Irresistible grace is a term we would use theologically. Irresistible grace is the most amazing grace I can imagine. We're going to all 
be safely home, not one lost. I watched when the, our children were small. We were together with a couple in Dallas. They had kids. We raised our kids pretty much together. We lived up there. We watched the Memphis Bell, that movie, about those fighter planes and all of that, you know. And the, 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 this last plane coming home after that last mission was so moving to me in this regard because it hit me the spiritual truth that it, would, it demonstrated, so to speak. Here's the commander standing on the bridge out there watching and watching as these old planes come rolling, flying in, you know. And, and, but this Memphis fell. <laughs> this Memphis fell. 51 or 52 missions, this was the last one. Watching and watching and waiting and wondering. And then you hear the drone and you see this old battered, shot up Memphis Bell plane coming in safe to land. Ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be like that. Not one be left out. Not one left behind. Some of us battered and scarred from whatever we've gone through in life, but kept, understand, kept for the day of redemption of our bodies because the soul has already been raised from the grave, the spiritual grave, but kept for the redemption of our bodies, not one missing, all home, safe by the sovereign grace of Almighty God. So the Holy Spirit, we've got the witness within us. Notice what he says as soon as he arrives in our hearts. Galatians 4, 6, Paul says, Because you're sons now, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's what he says. The Spirit in us, crying out to this sovereign God, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic term. It's a term that a little child can use, uh, a loving term to his father. Father. Same term Jesus used in his garden prayer. John 14, 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible with thee. Oh, that's truth. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not I will, but thy will be done. Abba, Father. And by God's saving grace, it is the same term that we can use without fear when we go to the Lord in prayer. Romans 8, 15, we've not received the spirit of bondage into fear. We received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Grace? Yes, grace. Sovereign, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent God. Orchestrating the galaxies, everything in the universe, yet... The scripture says that we can go boldly before his throne of grace, crying, Abba, Father, grace. Look at that last phrase in verse 13. I'd say, you divide it up A, B, and C. This is part C. This is an example that is the direct opposite of something I spoke about a week ago regarding the addition or deletion of 
words in the text depending on the translation that you are reading, okay? This is an example there. It's the opposite of what we spoke of. First, first John 5, 13, the C part, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, if you look at the first of that verse, 513, these things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Skip the middle part. And then, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, some scribe along the way felt that was a redundant statement apparently and just deleted that last phrase. So there are some manuscripts, Greek manuscripts, that don't have it. Don't have it at all. And the New American Standard Version, because it was translated from a different translation, from a different manuscript than what we use, the Textus Receptus, doesn't have it. Here's what the New American Standard 1995 edition says. These things I have written to you that believe, who believe on the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Period. That's in the last phrase. It's not in there. So some manuscripts didn't have that. That last phrase admitted then in several contemporary translations. All that to say this, most, the majority of the Greek transcripts have the phrase exactly as it is in the King James Version, including that phrase. And when you look at the content of that phrase, and you look at the Greek behind the words there, look at the structure, you see, wait a minute, this is not a redundant phrase this is a foundational phrase for the next thing that John is going to write. You may believe, you see, that you may believe is a subjunctive mood, okay? It means intentional action. That you may intentionally, continually believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Sets the foundation for this confidence that we have. Verse 15, 14. This is the confidence that continual believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this is truth. We believe this is true. We're going to live it. We're going to follow it. It's an intentional continuing belief in the truth of God in Christ Jesus. And this is our confidence. This is why we have confidence. And that first word in first. Uh, 5.14, and that links this verse back to all about our salvation, that confidence we have in our salvation. So here's this, if we have confidence in our salvation, and that's why John wrote this, right? That we be confident, that we know that we know we have eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that knowledge equates to confidence, does it not? How can we know for certain that we know the Father? The Spirit of God in us crying out, Abba, Father, and not have confidence when we come to the Lord in prayer. Assurance of salvation is assurance also in our prayer life. And this is the fourth uh, reference that John has made to the believer's confidence in his epistle. Four times he's talking about Confidence here. It's a word we've talked about before. Confidence is a, trans, is a Greek word, parousia. It means confidence or boldness, but particularly it means speaking plainly, earnest and straightforward in attitude and speech. That's the kind of confidence we have. We go before God our Father 
we can speak plainly, confidently, boldly, sure. We don't have to be, we're not intimidated by going before the throne of grace. This is our Father who sent His Son for us. We're not intimidated by that. Uh, boldness is not saying, hey God, I need to talk to you. It's not that. God help you. No. It's that we go confidently into the throne room and say, Father, I need to talk to you about a few things today. Speaking, speaking plainly right out of our hearts, right before his throne of grace. No fear of fuckery. No fear of rejection. Nothing. We're blood-bought. We're his. His spirit's in us. He knows what we need before we ask. <laughs> Now, little children, abide in him. Let's look back at some of these statements John has said about confidence. This is the fourth one. Let's look at some of the others here. 1 John 2, 28. Now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. Now, notice in this verse that abiding in Christ is linked to obeying him, Okay? Abide in him that we may have confidence and not be ashamed. First John, uh, John 15, 10, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. That's how we abide in Christ. We're walking in him and we're obeying him. We're following him. Close, intimate fellowship with the Lord. Keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So abiding in Christ is equated with Obeying Christ, and our confidence flows from that. But we're speaking of confidence at His coming. We've got it now, we'll have it then, right? Notice that obedience to the Father's commands, though, is the same for the Son as it is for a disciple. No difference. As I, even as I obey my Father. And our continuing confidence in the present what we're dealing with now, assures us of confidence in the future. If you don't have it now, you're not going to have it then. For the future, when he comes, which could be any day, who knows. First John 4, 17, Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in this world. That word boldness is the same word parousia that's translated confidence, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, confidence when the Lord comes, confidence in the day of judgment. Both of these verses talk about the future, confidence in the future, because we have it now, we have confidence in the future. Remember what I said about that, we were studying because as he is, that last phrase, because as he is, so we are in this world. Because the judgment for our sin is in the Lord's past, we have no judgment for our sins in our future. It's done once and for all. As He is, so we are in this world. Romans 4.25 says He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. It's done. E.B. Hill said, Black Pastor loved the guy. I loved to listen to him. Didn't know him personally, but I had to listen to him. He could preach. 
But the things I preach are sermonettes. He'd go on two or three hours, you know, I mean. But he said, Here, here's the issue. He said, God presented himself to himself so the deal went through when he's preaching on John 4, 25. <laughs> Delivered for our offenses. Raised again for our justification. Now those two examples, as I mentioned, are pointing toward the future. These next two passages have to do with the here and now in our prayer life, okay? 1 John 3, 21 through 22. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Notice that obedience always comes up and pleasing the Father always comes up and it's linked, linked to our confidence, right? But we have confidence. We have confidence toward God. 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have. If we ask anything, Anytime, any place, anywhere, anything, according to his will. Qualification. He that he heareth us, and if we know that he hear us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Boy. If we're living in disobedience to God's commandments, I'm talking about believers now, you and I. If we're living in disobedience to God's commandments, our heart's going to condemn us. That's what Holy Spirit conviction is. Now, it's not just our cardia. I mean, we have this resident person, Holy Spirit, in us, and we are going to be convicted of sin. And that conviction of sin that we're living in, and whatever the area is for disobedience, is certainly going to damage our level of confidence in prayer. Well, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've surely had it. And I've got something really on my mind I need to talk to the Father about, and I hit my knees in my little prayer room there spot. And I'm going to pray about this. And that Holy Spirit, He can sure get in the way sometime, can He? He brings to mind this thing I need to confess. An attitude or whatever. So I have to deal with that. <laughs> And then I'm thanking him and praising him for forgiveness and cleansing. And time you get through all that and say, now what did I come up here for anyway? <laughs> you know, there's so much to talk to the Lord about. Really. But when we're under conviction, it hinders our confidence level, certainly in prayer. It hinders not only our confidence level, but it hinders our receiving petitions that we ask as well. Because, why? We're not living according to his will and doing those things that are pleasing in his sight. That's where we are. And it's going to be that way until repentance is done. Now, I don't know about you and the people listening and tuning in with us. You know, sin is pleasure for a season for anybody, you got yours, I got mine, everybody, you know, there's stuff. It pulls on us. But none of it is worth this. <laughs> none of it is worth it to violate our confidence before God the Father and receive the petitions we ask because we're living according to His will. None of it's worth it. I don't care what this world has to offer. None of it's worth it. To be in that intimate fellowship, that, that, what we talked about, that unhindered fellowship with the Father and with the Son walking in the fullness of His Holy Spirit, sensitive to the gentle sway of the Spirit. Nothing is worth trading that 
for some momentary, temporal, sinful pleasure. But if our hearts are not convicting us of sin, because we are obeying as the commandments, doing things that are pleasing, we have that blessed assurance of answered prayer. And I guess it's important to, you know, to say this, the question, can a believer's assurance, confidence before God, and prayer rise or fall? Indeed, just like we said, because of the, sin, the hindrance of sin in our lives. Our confidence level can rise and fall. Verse 15, if you know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that are des we desired of him. It's an incredible thing. Here we are, believers in Christ Jesus the Lord, and this word right here says, there's this potential for this sovereign, eternal God to hear us, to hear you, to hear you and you, to hear me. He'll listen to me. Grace, unspeakable grace. That word know, if we know that he hears us, we know that we have. Use two times, oida, little Greek word. It's a perfect tense verb, indicative. It says to know as a fact. He's stating a fact. If we know as a fact that he hears us, we know as a fact that we have the petitions that we desired of him. And the key, of course, in verses 14 if we meet the requirement of praying according to his will. And the word, we, the phrase there, we have, that's a little Greek word, echo, and it is a present tense indicative again, stating a fact. We have, it's a fact. If we pray according to his will, we have, right now, present possession, continuing possession, the petitions that we ask for. Right? John does not say we will have. John says we have present tense. Possess it right now. And why not? Why not? Here's our Father who's already given us everything to bring us to life and godliness. He knows what we need before we ask. And we are asking him for something that's according to his will for his child to have. Why not would he answer it and let us have, provide for us sovereignly? what he intends for us to have. He grants it. It's interesting to think about the model prayer. First off, it starts with our Father. Abba, Father, our Father. And then you go down to this verse, part of it. Give us this day our daily bread. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because we're not just asking for bread. We're asking for our daily bread. We're claiming that the bread for which we're asking already belongs to us. Well, what father doesn't feed his children anyway? <laughs> and our father feeds us. We know that when we pray, give us our daily bread, Father, we know that, we, we know that we're praying according to the will of God because it is the will of God that we have bread. 
Jesus said that, Matthew 6, 36, Behold, the fowls of the air, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't put in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them, are ye not much more than they? Our daily bread. There's a proportion for us, sovereignly controlled and provided by the Father. And that's what the apostle is teaching us. When we pray according to the will of God, we have what we ask for. And the answer may come immediately, or it'll be a little later. Visible, or maybe not. But book it. If we pray, if a child of God prays, that's living in obedience to the Father, doing those things pleasing in his sight, when that child of God, man, woman, boy, or girl prays, according to the will of God, they're going to have then the possession of the answer that which they prayed for. Maybe visible right away, maybe not. The word says, if the request is in keeping with the will of God, we have it. Present tense verb, we have that petition now. You pray for things, I pray for things, didn't come, didn't see them too, time, too soon. But if it, one thing we were assured of, as soon as we got off our knees, if that prayer was according to the will of God, we have that. That's what God's Word tells us, right? Now, I'm going to close with a personal illustration that illustrates this. <laughs> so tolerate me a moment on this. This is a story about a navy blue lamb. Back in the day, our babies are smaller. All those aftermarket conversion vans were so hot. I mean, everybody's getting those things, you know. I wanted a van. I didn't want one of those. All that fluff. I didn't want all that. I just wanted a van van, you know. A van to haul my kids in, you know place for each, this car seat, that car seat, you know, that sort of stuff. I just wanted a van. And I began to pray for a van. Now, the, the possibility of me buying one was not. <laughs> you know, I was you know, going to seminary, I guess, at the time. You know, but nickels, two nickels to rub together is a big deal. Back at, well, Lord, I would love to have one of those vans and I prayed about it, thought about it. Didn't go look, wasn't it used to look. I just told the Lord, I'd like to have a little van, Lord. Upon a day, I was in, on Beltline in North Dallas, out there at Richardson. I was on the east side, west side of the red light, and there's Central Expressway, and I'm waiting for that everlasting light to change. And I'm sitting there a little bit bored, and all of a sudden, I had this vision clear as day. I was sitting in a navy blue Ford van. There was a, the doghouse right there with the engine in it. It was all navy blue. I thought, navy blue? Navy blue would be the last color on the planet I'd ever buy. That's just not my color. But that's what the vision was about. I thought, Lord, are you, are you going to buy one of those vans? Well, that was the vision. That was the end of it. For two or three years, about three years later, we were down in Kemp, Texas, First Baptist Church, the pastor that I was in the parsonage there, study off the end of the house, and there, and I'd still praying about that van, you know. 
one of those vans for my kids. And my, my mother-in-law lived down in Florida, and, you know, it would be great to go down there and take the babes, you know, on vacation to see Wave's mom. And, oh, that'd be handy. And other things, too. And I watched the classified section of the Dallas paper and other papers. And one day I saw there was a 79 Ford van for sale that had 59,000 miles on it. They wanted $6,500 for it. So I called them. They were the original owners that bought it new. They were selling it. Never been in a wreck. Nothing clean title. We asked several questions about it, and then I said, and it was the lady to whom I was speaking, I said, ma'am, what color is it? And she said, navy blue. <laughs> and I'm thinking, navy blue? <laughs> so I thanked her for a time and I hung up the phone, went and told Waverly, I said, baby, let's pray. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe this is it. And so I waited a, a week, and the next week I called again. And I said, Lord, preserve it for us if it's yours, for us. If that's your chosen van, preserve it for us. And so the next week I called her, about midweek, I said, is the van still available? Yes, it is. I said, well, we're sure interested in it. We're thinking about it, and we're praying about it. I'll be back in touch. And I waited another week, and I called her. Yes, sir, it's still available. I said, my wife and I want to come see it. And so Waverly and I made an appointment. We went up there and looked at the van, and I'm telling you, this thing was immaculate clean. It looked like it was brand new inside and out, and she said, would you like to drive it? I said, yes, ma'am, we would. Waverly and I got in it. We drove it all around, got it out on the highway, drove perfect. And so going back to the house, we pulled into a parking lot. I said, here. Baby, give me your hand. Let's pray. And we prayed and said, Lord, we, we like this van. Waverly liked it, I liked it. We like this van. If this is your van for us, we want it. But if it's not, we sure don't want it. Your will be done in this deal, Lord. And I said, Lord, it looks like you're leading this way, but could I ask you for one more sign? Because we want to be sure we're in your will, Lord. This is a lot of money for us. This is a lot of money for us that day, a bunch. We had some money from a car that I had sold, but not that much. So I said, Lord, would you give us one more sign? Would you have that them come down on a price, $500, without my asking them to do it? In Jesus' name, amen. Let go away with his hand, grabbed that steering wheel, and away went back to the house, drove up in the yard. lady came out the front door, and she said, did you like it? And I said, yes, ma'am, we really liked it. It's a very nice van. She said, well, I just got off the phone with my husband, and he said, if y'all wanted it, we'd come down on the price $500. I said, ma'am, we just want this man. <laughs> Glory to God. Clear sign. In the will of God. Knew it was God's will for us to have that van. Ladies and gentlemen, we hauled our kids back and forth to Florida, to Bible camps, you know, Ridgecrest, North Carolina. I hauled Baptists to camps, to conventions, children to youth, all kinds of stuff, and when I sold that van, it had 271,000 miles on it. We never rebuilt the engine, the transmission, or the differential. Not one thing. Tires, other lives, and ends. The scripture says that every good and perfect gift cometh down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. And ladies and gentlemen, that day, 
that day, to the glory of the Father, it was a Navy blue van. A Navy blue van. You never know, but I know this. And the Word of God tells us, when we pray according to the will of God, we have it. We have it now. We may not see it until next year or thereafter, but we have it now. Glory, glory, glory to our Father. There's just nobody like the Lord. Holy God. Lord, there's... Lord, you know there's a whole lot of stories I can tell. You've done so many things, so many years. And we're grateful, Father. Waverly was grateful. I'm grateful. <laughs> Lord, enable us to walk obediently with position. Let there be no hindrance, Lord, in our fellowship with you and with the Lord Jesus, Lord, that we walk in unhindered fellowship. It's not to get things from you, Lord. It's just to walk in fellowship with you and enjoy your presence to the fullness in our lives. And then when there are needs that come along, to lay them at your feet and trust you with everything you already know we need already. Glorious Father, wonderful Savior, we thank you and praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.